we've been walking through for the last several weeks now, 1 Kings 1 through 11. It's what this series is, uh, is looking at specifically. What does it mean that God is the king of our heart? And we, we have defined what that means to help us really put some traction around that. Because when God is the king of our heart, it means that we are going to be um, in submission to the Lord in all the areas of our life. That there's not one uh, facet, one, one bit of, of, of our soul that's not going to be intersected by the submission to God and his will. That he captivates and captures all of our heart. But if we're really going to understand why it is that the Lord needs to be the king of our heart, I think it's important for us to begin this way. We just have to, we have to know, we have to understand, we have to believe that my heart, that your heart is just prone to wandering. It's just prone to deception. And that's not something we necessarily want to believe. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to look in the mirror every morning and go, oh man, Aaron, look at, the, like you have a heart that's prone to deception. Like there are things that you're going to believe today that that are just not true. But listen, it's been true of humanity since Adam and Eve first fell for Satan's deception. So I think that one of the ways that we can launch into this text is that we just have to be willing to admit that our hearts are easily deceived. Our hearts are easily captivated by lesser and even really good things. Things that sometimes can just entice us away from God. It's for that reason that I really, really want us to just be so aware of the subtlety that is the deception of these lesser things. I just shared with you that my family and I just moved here, and so in order for you to get to know me and maybe even illustrate what I'm talking about here, I want to just share for a moment a little bit about um, us and God's call here. So on January the 6th, um, and I served at a church called Summit Church, a multi-site church in southwest Florida, Naples, Fort Myers, and North Fort Myers. And I was leading the Naples campus, and, and we were doing kind of some reorganization, and I was really encouraged. We're at the, a, a campus that is, actually has a facility under construction, and we had just made some new hires, and everything is going fabulous. And one of the other elders was up, and, and he was just sharing some things, and, and he really was honoring me in some ways that was emotional, and I felt overwhelmed. And I had this sense in that moment where God said, Aaron, I want to affirm those things in your life, but here's what you need to know, that those things are going to be exercised in a different place that your time at Summit is done. I'm like, wait a minute, Lord, I'm afraid we've, we've got some signals crossed here because, you see, you don't, you don't do that when things are going well, right? Like, I, I'm not willing to just uproot everything and, and go to a place that I do not know. And, and on January 6th, this wasn't necessarily on the horizon, I didn't know where God was going to put us. And I remember in those moments, I just began to wrestle. Wait a minute, God. (laughs) You don't understand. There is something that I really, really like, and that is safety, security, comfort. I like to know what's next. Like, I don't know if that ever describes you, but I could just tell you that's me. Like, as long as I know what's coming, I feel like I can put my, my arms around it and I can understand it a little bit. Hmm. But God does some amazing things as he captivates and captures our heart, doesn't he? Because for me and probably for you, what is is known is so much easier than what's unknown. Where I'm at is so much more comfortable 
than to submit in obedience to where I got to go. And in that moment, I remember just being captivated by my comfort. And I don't want you, I don't want my life to be marked, captivated, enticed by lesser things. I just don't. I want God to be the king of my heart. And I hope that's your prayer as well, because as we look at this text, and I believe that you're going to see it and it's going to rise right out of this text, that when he is the king of our heart, his glory is actually made known in and through our life, that it actually comes out. So here's what I want you to do this morning. We're going to start to read this text, and I just want you to hold this one thought. Just hold it all the way through, that when God is the king of our heart, his glory is displayed in my life, and his, his glory is displayed through our lives. Like it's tangible. We can see it. People look and go, there is a noticeable difference. Somebody has captivated and captured that man. So here's where we're going to go. This is what this is going to look like this morning. I'm just going to put it out there at the beginning. I'm going to give us just three opportunities. Three opportunities for us to look at this text and see where God's glory is not only displayed in the life of Solomon, but it actually can be displayed in our life as well. I want you to just join me quietly, and I'm just going to pray for us, pray for our time, and here's what I want you to just consider for yourself. As we've walked through this series, could you say, man, Jesus, he's the king of my heart. Let's pray together. Father, God, what a privilege it is to open your word, and to stand before your people. And so, Father, I want to admit my own weaknesses, my own power powerlessness. But, God, we want to lift up your name. We want to lift up your great power. We want to know that you are the God that works in and through all of your people. It is your word that we hold in our hands. It's your word that we open up this morning. It is your word that we preach. And so, God, I pray that you would just use your word this morning in mighty and powerful ways. Remove distractions. Communicate through me, God, only what you'd have us to know. And I pray that at the end of that, God, your name would be lifted high. We ask this thing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me get right into it and just give you this first opportunity. When God is king of your heart, we can seize opportunities to share our faith. So let's go into the text, start in verse 1. We're going to go through for this first little bit, just through verse 5, and uh, really see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. I find that interesting, right? Hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. That just means all of their advisors. Like she brought a bunch of really smart people with her. With camels bearing spices, a lot of wealth, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. The Hebrew there literally means everything that was on her heart. Like, I don't know if she expected to do that, but when she gets there, she's just like, blah, right? Everything to Solomon. That's, that's what the original language says there. You've got a whole new visual now, don't you? And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, that's the temple, 
the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And that's a powerful few verses there. So here's what's happening. The queen of Sheba, who comes from, you know, a pretty far and long distance away, hears about Solomon, who's reigning now over Israel. And here's some things that she hears about. She hears about this wisdom, but she just doesn't know whether or not to believe it. She hears about his riches. She hears about this temple, this ornate temple that he has built for the Lord. Because Solomon's fame now is beginning to just spread pretty rapidly, he then is presented with some really unique opportunities when Sheba just shows up at his door. I don't know culturally if this would have been the right thing to do, but, but he probably could have just dismissed her, right? Like he was the most powerful king, but it's not what the text says. It says she actually came with hard questions, and then Solomon, what does he do? He actually seizes the opportunity, and he's going to answer all of her questions. And as I was studying this this week, I just, I just wondered, I just pondered. I wondered if he was recalling his prayer in 1 Kings 8.43. Because what he asked of the Lord is that all of the earth may know the Lord's name, that all of the earth may fear God. And I wonder when Sheba and, and this entire uh, entourage shows up, I wonder if he saw that and he said, ah, oh, God has given me opportunity. God is beginning to answer my prayer. She had to travel a long way. And Solomon gets an opportunity. Because I think that he could have, he could have made it all about himself. I'm wise. Let me take a few moments and just impress you. But instead, he has the opportunity right now to point her to the one who can answer all of her hard questions, to the one who had given him the source of all of his wisdom. And for us too, do you know that God is going to give us opportunities to share our faith? And a lot of times it's going to be when we encounter someone who has really hard questions often wondered why. Can't you just make it easy, God? Can't someone just show up at my door and say, how can I come to, to faith in Christ and I don't need any of those hard questions answered? Right? Wouldn't that be lovely? And just make it a line out my front door so that the opportunity I have that I can just like, oh yeah, just come to faith in Christ, come to faith in Christ. And yet that's not what he often does. Often the times God brings us people in our life that have really hard questions. And I wondered why. Maybe a lot of reasons, but I think one of the reasons is because we're all struggling with questions that are really hard. I mean, if we're honest, we have questions we have questions about God's existence. We have questions sometimes about our purpose. We have questions like, what is, what is the meaning of life? We have questions about eternity. Have you ever just stopped and pondered eternity for a moment and then thought, I'm crazy? Like, I'm crazy. That can't be real. Here's some other things that we ponder. Here's some hard questions that, at least I've had, the whys of suffering. God's will. What's he's doing in this world? You ever look at the world and, and like the craziness that just exists and go, God, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you have a plan. I know that you have a purpose and I have no idea what it is that you're doing. Man, we just want answers. I had somebody tell me one time, said, Aaron, you're just a why guy. You know what they meant? 
Like, I just felt like I would be satisfied if I knew all of the whys. Do you know what God has done? Never saw fit to actually give me any of the whys in my life. I don't know why that is. Other than he cultivates constantly in me this truth that i got to trust him just more and more. I'm going to guess that as a believer here this morning, you've had those hard questions. I'm going to guess that you have actually found yourself wrestling with, with some of those things. Can I just tell you something this morning? You're normal. Maybe you can, I don't know, let's just pause on that. You're normal. Maybe you just needed someone to tell you that you're normal. That those things that you wrestle with is not something that just is in your soul, in your heart. Like Sheba, who came with all of these hard questions. Man, that's the reality of humanity since it began, that we have hard questions. It's just normal. And here's what I want you to understand. Like, if you're wrestling with really hard questions, certainly other people are too. People that do not have faith in Christ. And it just seems like God puts people in our lives who have these hard questions. And all of a sudden, we just have an opportunity. So, if we frame that first bit of text that way, can I just ask you a, a question? If someone came to you and they had hard questions, or when you encounter someone who has hard questions, or when you're faced with that, do you seize that opportunity? Solomon sat, and he engaged, and he answered the questions. But there might even be a better question to ask there. What would stop us from wanting to seize those opportunities? Right? What would stop us? Because I think a lot of us would say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going to seize that opportunity. If God puts somebody in front of me with a really hard question, like, I'm good, I'm going to. But I think that there's a reality that we need to ask, why wouldn't we? I don't know, it could be a couple of things that are just true for us. Do you that we might not know the answer? I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know that at times I've, I've, I've struggled with this. Like, I don't know the answers to some of my own hard questions, let alone anyone else's. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to shrink back. I don't want to engage that conversation because, listen, if I can't figure it out myself, how in the world am I ever going to give that to somebody else? Or maybe some of us just muster up the conviction to, to push through the fear. And our problem is that we just fail to convince someone that what we believe is actually true. Well, I'm not going to do that again. I fell flat on my face. They didn't believe one thing about what I shared with them. Matter of fact, they were antagonistic towards me. Can I just relieve the pressure valve there for a moment? Do you know that it's not your responsibility to convince someone the truth about Jesus? It's just not yours. Jesus himself didn't even try to convince the hard-hearted about himself. So if we go to Matthew 12, which we're not going to turn there, but just let me kind of give you the synopsis of what's going on. Pharisees come to Jesus, and here's what they want. They said, um, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then you're going to give us a sign. We want to know that all that you claim is true, and we're going to believe that when you give us some kind of sign. Now, the reality is Jesus did all sorts of signs throughout his ministry, and people still didn't believe, right? But then I find it really interesting what he actually does say. 
Think about, this is Jesus' response. This may not be our response because we're not the son of God. This is what he, he looks at the Pharisees and he says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except. And then what he does is he uses the, the story of Jonah and he, as a metaphor and he points and he says, now listen, the only sign that, the only sign that I'm going to give you is the future death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only thing you need. That's it. And then he lands this little encounter with the Pharisees by using the Queen of Sheba as an illustration of someone who was willing to listen, even though when she came to Solomon, she had never even heard of the God of Israel. It's kind of like Jesus shows up and like only in a good, I've never sinned kind of way, he kind of shames them, right? <laughs> He's kept, we probably can never do that without sin. Here's the point. I can use all sorts of internal excuses as to why when the Lord puts those opportunities before me, I don't seize them. I could be a Pharisee and I can demand a sign before I speak, right? God, if you'll do this, if they say this, if you'll, you know what I mean, if they ask me to lunch, then I'll know that it's from you. We can demand a sign. Or I can just try to hope like, oh, let me just send them to somebody else. I hope they can answer their questions. But at the end of the day, when I, when you, when we all seize opportunity, when we don't worry about the results, in spite of our fear or the spite of our failure, then God's glory is then displayed in and through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit in ways that demonstrate the power of God. I'm just telling you, it's miraculous in the moment. Why can I say that? Because verse 5 ends this way, the queen of Sheba is left breathless. For right now, I just want you to remember that. That her response, her response was breathless. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the message, at the end of our time. But when God's power is demonstrated through your life in ways that you don't have any ability to produce on your own power, it will leave others breathless. All right, let me give us just another opportunity for God's glory displayed in and through our lives. Here's the second thing. When God is the king of our heart, we can source our joy in God's rule over our life. Let's look at that. Verse 6, pick it up. She began and she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you King. Notice Sheba's constant response here. Like she's looking at it, she said, I can only attribute Solomon what he has accomplished through you because of the God that you serve. There, there was no posture where she looked at it and she said, oh, okay, yeah, it's very clear that you're just a really smart guy who's a really great king. She said, no, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's just pretty obvious that it's, it's actually the God that you serve. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. 
I've been in ministry a long, long time. And one of the things that I'm convinced of is that this understanding, this truth that we have to fight for sourcing our joy in God's rule over our lives is just that. It's a fight. Be honest with me. Like, don't raise your hand. But don't you at times really want to be filled with joy and yet you find that it is the thing that escapes you the most? See, I'm not just sure about where you're at, but I know for me that I, Aaron, have to continually submit to the belief that God's rule over me is actually the source of my greatest joy. Because just the thought that I could experience this increasing joy, that God's rule over me is going to, to, to help me flourish, that collides with my everyday belief on the ground. And that right there, my friends, is where the fight is. But notice in verse 8, Sheba makes an interesting observation because what she says is she says this, happy are your men. Like she looks at Solomon, she looks at the men that serve under him, and then she says this, they're happy. And again, in the original languages, it could, be, it could be translated this way, an experience to be enjoyed. And so the question I just had is, like, why are they experiencing so much happiness serving under King Solomon's rule? Like, what is it about that that has brought them to this place where when Shiva shows up from this long country far, far away, she said, oh man, it's clear, these guys are happy. And I just started to wonder, I wonder that with, with all that Shiva was experiencing in just these few moments, with, with her wisdom, if she started to become um, very aware of what it was that was the the motivation for the happiness of those who served. I mean, certainly, if we think about it, the joy of the servants of Solomon that they were experiencing in that moment was because they were, ser- they were serving under a wise and really good king, and that actually proved to be to their benefit. Right? When a leader is wise and he leads in wisdom, then it benefits the people that fall under him. Do you know that God's choice of Solomon as this king to rule with his wisdom was a mark of love for his people that actually maximized their joy? It was a means of God's grace because if you, if you know anything about Old Testament history, what happens? We go from good kings to bad kings to good kings, right? And, and the people are in this constant state of, of tumultuousness. They forget the Lord, then they come back to the Lord, then they forget the Lord, then they come back to the Lord. And as they continue to go through that, Uh, process throughout the entirety of the reign, it is always when they are serving under a good and wise king who is serving the Lord that they actually prosper themselves. Always. So just think about this for a moment for your own life. What is the attribute of a good and wise king? Like in your mind, I want you just to make the next, you know, few seconds and just start to think, like what are the attributes of a good leader? What would you consider, and we can probably come up with a long list in today's political climate, can't we? With everything that seems to be going on around the world, man, we would look and say, a good leader is marked by this. Maybe some of, your, maybe some of the things on your list include things like fairness or honesty or understanding or trustworthiness or dependability. 
And I would tell you those are great things. They really are. But I would assert this, that they flow out of two attributes, righteousness and justice. Because righteousness deals first with our heart, long before it ever flows out in our actions. You see, you're not actually righteous in just your actions until, first of all, you're righteous internally. And then justice, well, justice is just how righteousness is actually lived out towards other people. So if we think about fairness or kindness or honesty, that's actually the definition in a lot of ways of justice being lived out of righteousness. Make sense? You tracking with that? So in 1 Kings 10 uh, verse 9, Sheba says something super interesting when she says that Solomon has been made a king to execute righteousness and justice because that's the role of a good leader. Like, we want to serve under a leader who, whose attributes are righteous and justice. And when those things are the attributes of the leader over us, you know what happens? It actually becomes a joy to serve under them. And when it's a joy, our, our flourishing as human beings is actually maximized. So let's bring that a little bit more to street level because... I think that the joy of the servants that Solomon really experienced here is just a picture of the greater joy of our greater king. If you understand anything about what we call uh, the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, right, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire story of that, then what we'll see is that Solomon and his reign was a real intangible thing, but was also a foreshadowing, a microcosm of the greater kingdom of God that was to come. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Solomon. So when we look at and we see this, what we begin to see is that, is that those attributes are actually what the, the, the perfect attributes of Christ is in the kingdom that he has come, that he has established in part, that he will bring into fullness at the end of this time. So maybe you've never thought about God's rule over us as a means of your human flourishing. Perhaps you've just never framed it in your mind that way. That God's rule and all of the parameters that he begins to put around our life are actually not things to inhibit your joy. God does those things in order to maximize your joy because he loves you so much that he wants to see your life more full of joy than you are currently experiencing in your life. That's God's purpose in that. Let me illustrate that. We've spent years and years in Florida. You know what's in the middle of Florida? The happiest place on earth, right? Which is debatable from... For a lot of reasons, it's debatable. Because it's hot, and there's long lines, and oh, there's a lot of good things about Disney. My family and I loved it. When, when our kids, especially, were younger, we would, uh, we would travel about, Disney was about three hours, and, and at that time, you could actually afford to go because the passes were very, you know, they were kind of inexpensive for Florida residents. And so we would go up there, and man, we would just play in the parks and just have a great time as a family. But there was, there was a rule that Jen and I had. Right after lunch, what we were going to do is go back to the hotel, and we were going to take a nap. 
Now, I just want you to consider what that was like for our children. <laughs> we're at Disney. And what they hear from me is, we're going to go back and we're going to take a nap. There was a good purpose behind that. See, some of the things that we knew as parents that they didn't know is that if they went back and they took a little nap and they got rested, we were going to go back to the park. We were going to go experience something as a family that was going to bring us a lot of joy and a lot of happiness. But in the moment, my kids were like, I don't think so, Dad. Like, that sounds miserable. And yet... We did that one time. And just like on the commercial, we were on the Dumbo ride. You know the Dumbo ride that's on every commercial? While the fireworks were going off and the music was playing and they could have made a commercial with the Lundquist family. <laughs> Why do I share that silly illustration with you? Because God does the same thing for us. He has given parameters in his word around our life, and they're not to inhibit you. If you're here this morning, and perhaps you've just looked at the Bible as some kind of rules to follow, and you're rejecting that, like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that, then maybe what you need to be is just encouraged that God actually does that in the same way that a parent does that with his kids at Disney World to maximize their joy and create greater flourishing in their life. And it delights God because I'll never forget that moment and a lot of other Disney moments. In the middle of the drenching central Florida heat, the delight in my kid's face made it all worth it. But I want to ask us all a question. It's a question that I'm always asking my, myself as I go through a week, and that's this, how do I source my, my joy in God's rule over me? How do I do that? Well, quickly, we just have to know that if justice and righteousness are these marks of a good king, then it has to be dispensed to everyone or justice isn't served. Make sense? And that means that justice then must be served in all cases of sin and evil, from the worst dictator and the most heinous acts to the evil, listen to me, that flows out of you and me. You see, evil just doesn't exist outside of us. Evil is not one of those things that just happens to us. It's actually in us. Jesus says in Mark 7, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and evil or envy and slander and pride and foolishness. Here's the bottom line. Justice that needs to be served has to be served to me. So let me tie that back to how we source our joy because the amazing thing about the gospel is that it says Jesus not only delivers justice by taking the punishment, but then he actually becomes a righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Like he credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. Do you know what that enables you to do? It means that not only are you forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but now you have unfettered access to God because your righteousness is not dependent upon you, but upon God. 
So how do we source our joy in God's rule over that? I told you when I began, it's a fight. Like it's an actual fight for you. We have to remember that in the moments of suffering, in the moments of despair, in the moments when you are going through things that you just don't know that you're ever going to be able to to overcome, right? I've spoken already with some of you. I'm starting to hear some of your stories and you're facing some incredible things and the fight for joy feels like something you're losing, And what we have to do in that moment is we have to remember that what Jesus has done for us, how he has sacrificed for us, has actually paved the path to unceasing joy in the future. And see, suddenly everything else pales in comparison. All of a sudden, in in light of eternity, everything else just kind of pales in comparison. And listen, I'm not saying we dismiss the difficulties because they're really tough things. Like, let's get together and let's pull those things apart and let's deal with those things. But here's what I am saying. In light of eternity, the blood bought, the, the blood of Jesus, rather, has delivered our increasing joy that will supersede your darkest moments. So when our lives are lived in such a way that our joy is sourced in God's rule, then he is the king of our hearts and his glory is displayed in and through our lives to those who are watching. Another way that the world is left breathless is to watch the joyfulness of a believer in the midst of their suffering. All right, quickly, and we're going to be done. Last one, when God is king of our hearts, we can share God's blessing in our lives with others. Go with me to verse 11. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, for lyres and harps and for singers. No such almond wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked, besides what was given to her by the bounty of the king, Solomon, by, excuse me, given to her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and she went back to her own land with her own servants. You see in those verses, right, just, a, just kind of this exchange of gifts a little bit. I'm sure for Sheba, what she was doing was she was just kind of inking a trade deal. Like, that's how it worked culturally at that time in history. You would bring these gifts, and what you would do is you would give them to one another, and it was kind of the way that you were going to ink a trade deal. But notice that when Solomon gives back to her, he gives her gifts that are of the highest value, far greater than what she gave him. So she's coming to a guy that is greater than her and gives him gifts, and he in turn blesses her far more than she ever blesses him. He has bestowed these lavish gifts on her as an overflow of his majesty. Do you see the connection? Because I can't help but think of Paul's words in Ephesians 3, or Ephesians 1, rather, in verse 3, when when Paul writes this about uh, our blessing in Christ. He said, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Then in verse 7 and 8, it says this, in him, in Christ, that is, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the what? Riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
And I love that word lavish because it really describes what our blessing to other people should actually be like. Do we seek to share with others the blessings of God in ways that are lavish? You see, the, the spiritual blessings of the king we serve are actually meant to be, to be shared as this abundance of God's gift to us. And without a doubt, I think we all in this agree, if, you're, if you are a believer in Christ, you would, you would agree with me that the biggest blessings we can share are not physical but spiritual, right? Like, we as a people who've rebelled and are dying and face an eternity in hell without God need the spiritual far more than we need the physical, that's why this blessing looks like this, extending the radical love of Christ to those around us. Because listen to me, a reason that this church exists is to use the blessings of God to extend the fame of God to the people who need to hear the grace of God. But for all of that, let's not negate that a lot of times, often, the spiritual begins with the physical, tangible things that God gives us as opportunities for the good of other people. So this past week, we had a kids' camp, and we had a block party Friday night. And I've been talking with Mark even before I arrived here in Winston, and he's been sharing with me the opportunities that God has opened up in this community around us. And here's the prayer, that that is just the beginning of the physical opportunities that God is going to give us to share the spiritual truth. Like, that's my hope. So for you and for me, then the question becomes, how specifically can I bless other people with what God has blessed me with? Or to frame it this way, how can we leverage our church? How can we leverage our relationships, our work, our recreation? How can we leverage all that God has entrusted us to share, with, uh, to share God's blessings with others in places that he has placed us? What does that look like for you? Because I, I probably can't answer that for you in your context. I do know this, though, that when we, when we posture our heart like that, because he is the king of our hearts, his glory is, is truly displayed in and through our lives, which leads us back to verse 5, and I'm going to close. When God is the king of our hearts, do we just trust that he will leave us breathless? And I want to wrap up our time by just reminding us of what it is that God does when his glory is displayed in and through our lives. And like Sheba, the Lord often will leave us just breathless. The response to, to what she heard was, was breathlessness, which in, again, the original language, is it, it, it literally means this. Strong emotion, totally undone, overwhelmed, amazed. Faith lived out astonishes the world. So here's where it's good to remember that when Solomon gives Sheba an audience and she hears his wisdom, the wisdom that wasn't his but was the gracious gift of God, that means it's impossible for Solomon to take any credit for how God has gifted him. We can't take any credit for the ways that God has gifted us. 
We just have to be willing in obedience to use it. And as he did, as Solomon did, as we did, God blesses. And Sheba was overwhelmed. She was overwhelmed. Remember the first five verses? What was she overwhelmed with? The God that he served. So when God is the king of our hearts, his glory will be displayed in and through our lives. Our only response is obedience as we seize opportunity to share our faith and we become a people that sources our joy in God's rule and share the blessings that he has lavished upon us with other people, which then ultimately results in what the Lord will produce. And that is this, my friends. The God of all grace who has delivered us from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son will leave you and I breathless. And so we're going to sing here in a moment. After I pray, and here's my hope for you, that I hope even in this moment, God this morning, not because of Aaron, (laughs) because of his word, that you are breathless. Father, encourage us this morning. Got to pray that as we praise your name in these In this last song, God, that you will stun us with your magnificence, that your glory will be something that shines through to this place in unimaginable ways. God, do a work in our heart, I pray, in and through your people and in this church. We ask this, and all God's people said, amen.